Welcome to the Strip Till Farmer Podcast, the first of 2023. Great to have you with us. Thanks to our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment. We'll have a message from them momentarily. My name is Noah Newman, Associate Editor. On today's episode, our good friend Julia Gerlach sits down with independent crop consultant Jeremiah Durbin for a conversation about the physical, chemical, and biological aspects of soil health and how he uses his mechanical background to help troubleshoot some of those issues in the field. Let's get right into it. Here's Jeremiah and Julia. My name is Jeremiah Durbin. I'm independent crop consultant, currently still based in Southern Ohio. I consult in six states, Ohio, a little bit of Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, North Carolina, and a little bit into Georgia. Uh, so uh, I'm no stranger to the highway, right? I get around and, and get to help with multiple different crops, different seasons, different everything. seems like things are always changing. Um, so I do that on an independent basis, you know, just working with the client, the client where they're at. Uh, when I first started in this industry and then on my own, it was like end of 2016, beginning of 17, um, conventional, you know, because that was what was right around me um, before I started to outward grow in different states. So as time has gone on, I felt like I don't have all the answers for the chemistry side of farming, but I knew that we were missing something and that was the biological side. So I started, you know, searching towards that regenerative. So I worked with conventional to regenerative, small grain, pastures, cattle, high production, uh, vegetables, things like that. Uh, hemp and, and and other things. Even dabbled, you know, work helping with marijuana with the with the soil and the water and and, and hydroponics and things like that. Helping with the nutrient side. So that's kind of what I do with the independent uh, consulting. So for TACD uh, on the off time that I have because I have so much of it, um, I work with NRCS, USDA, and water and soil water a partnership. And so I help farmers build cover crop programs help them work on their, their um, soil balance, uh, but then also do a lot of Haney testing. I've had a great privilege of building a relationship with Dr. Uh, Rick and Liz Haney, and um, they're like family to me. And so I've, I've learned that test in and out, understanding how that works. I feel like I have a gift for taking things from a PhD and putting it into a GED. <laughs> and so a lot of farmers, they're, they're willing to try new things because farmers are the biggest risk takers there are, whether that's a fertility type, a seed type, whatever. But when you can start to help them unlock for themselves, because that's the hardest person to win over is yourself, right? Uh, I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face, but if you don't understand it or don't believe in it, I'm not going to change you. So being able to work with those guys and help them in that process and that journey, because every farm, every production is different. So I'm able to work beside them. Um, and where I work side by side with USDA and NRCS with that job, they know the programs. You know, I know a lot of them now, and but... I don't hone myself in on the deadlines. No, I, I do with helping guys with termination, grazing, whatever. Yes, I do that. But I'm more focused on helping them understand soil health, uh, that three-legged stool of, of the physical, uh, the chemistry, and the biology, okay? So unlocking that secret, it's not a secret, but it's a secret until you know, that part is what I do best, helping people understand. So I travel the whole state, um, and I have a set amount of time. I go and do that. And then on the off time, uh, you know, through relationships, built a lot of new clients. So Tennessee's definitely became a home uh, in the process of, of getting moved there myself. So spend a lot of time on the road, okay. as you can probably imagine. Um, but uh, I'd say our in the very new future here, we'll be in our new home will be in, in headquarters, Tennessee. I'd like to tell you that I'm T cross and I daughter, but I would be lying to you. I'm like your 20 mile an hour corn planter. Somebody else is going to have to be the combine. Of course, bring everything together. You know, my wife helps me a lot, keep this thing together. 
Um, I've got some other really great friends in this industry. Uh, Mitchell Hora, Topsoil, Continuum Ag, uh, Russell Hedrick, guys like that. We, we build off each other. Um, and so we're able to kind of keep things in, in, in line. I joke sometimes, I, uh, Carolyn, which is the agronomist for Continuum, um, work a lot with them in their topsoil tool. And I, I think she's almost like a work wife because she's like, hey, remember we have this meeting? And I'm like, so thank you. Because, you know, I may be on the road. Sometimes I'll leave and be gone for five days. Um, and I hate it, but I know that I'm building the future for my family. And eventually I'm going to slow down in some areas and, and, and really hone this out because, you know, I have five children. I have three boys and two girls and I want them to all grow up and experience life as I have. And I guess I haven't really digged in, dug into my past yet, but um, found purpose. Uh, I, I want to say I had a, a second gift of life. Uh, I broke my neck and went paralyzed in 2015. Uh, so previously I was a mechanic, uh, came from a, from a split home, but honestly it was a blessing. It gave me the opportunity to see the best of, of two different worlds. Uh, dad farmed the construction. Uh, mom lived in town. Uh, stepfather was a, a chief of police and, and so I got to see how to work with, with professional business in, in the city, urban style. Dad, you know, the, the country life and, and the family and the friends that we would meet. You know, one of my first jobs off of, off of the farm with my dad when I was 12 was a dairy farmer of our friend of ours. And so when Dad and I wouldn't get along or, or uh, I needed to go do something else to get away from him, I could go work for the dairy farmer. And so he did tobacco and he grain farmed, did silage for the cows and milk. So I had that well-rounded side. On moms, I did, I did things too. So I did that, graduated high school, uh, 2005. I had a full ride to Caterpillar School. Uh, I was the first one from Southern Hills Vocational School. Uh, I had an instructor, Barney Neal, that was a great supporter uh, of mine. I feel like he constantly kept his boot in my butt because I was a little stubborn, a little ornery. Uh, and even growing up when I was in school, it was a vocational school there the last two years. Um, I took ag industrial mechanics and he was the teacher. So I would cut tobacco for him of the evenings and I get sick of him there, then I go to school the next day. Uh, so, but it was great because those guys pushed me. Um, I didn't really know what I had a hold of. I felt like a wild horse sometimes because I was just running any direction I could to make money and figure out who I was. Um, but I've always had a passion for trying to fix things and troubleshooting and seeing how things work. And it just mechanically came natural. So graduating high school, had a full ride to Caterpillar School, uh, 05, graduated in 07 with that uh, Associates Applied Chemical Science and, and emphasis in Caterpillar. Right out of the gate, uh, worked for CAT, worked in Lucasville uh, at that location, worked at Cincinnati, worked at Columbus. Um, I got married uh, in 2007. So right after I graduated college, I got married. And so, you know, had that journey with my wife and, and you know, it's been difficult because in those early years, mechanic and, you know, there wasn't a lot of jobs that was gonna pay anything close to home here. Uh, so you had to travel. And with Caterpillar, you went where the work was. So most of your highway jobs and that. So it, it kept me away from home as well. Quit over the road, came home, worked for GE for a small period working on aircraft engines. Wasn't quite my cup of tea. I'm not an inside kind of person. But it taught me a lot about, about process and paperwork and some of that stuff I hate to do. From there, I went to the county highway department, Adams County Highway. I uh, had an accident March 18, 2015. I uh, got hit with a tree in a bucket truck. 25 feet in the air, uh, destroyed C6, broke two teeth, went blind in my left eye, half of it, and lost function of my right arm. Uh, by the grace of God, I got it all back. So that, um, you know, life still goes on, but I started looking at things in a little different fashion. That I didn't want just two people or, or 12 people in that funeral room with me when I finally die. I'd rather it be a standing room and not be a funeral, be a, a celebration of life and friends that were able to be built through this journey of what I have left of life. 
so that it brought people together and that, and that they can enjoy that. So hopefully that's the legacy I leave and helping people be sustainable and successful in the same, same token. Um, you know, in this journey, so I guess I got to keep going here. I keep going back and forth. I broke my neck. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, with, with Ronnie Bonder here, Bonder Farms, and great mentor. I mean, the guy just, he, he's been there for me. Uh, ups and downs of life, we all have them. You know, he never had a problem wanting to put a boot in my butt and tell me what I needed to quit doing, but he didn't give up. He didn't walk away and badmouth me and, and continually badmouth. So I got to tell you, I, I have a great love for that man. Um, I wouldn't tell him because his head price well. Really, it wouldn't. He's a super humble guy, but he helps a lot of people. But um, while here and being able to come and because, you know, I was in a, a net collar and different medications, so I didn't have the ability to drive and do things. Uh, but I spent a lot of time and watching his operation. And, you know, it's about 45 minutes from here uh, to where I live and seeing the farms. And, and I know the people and how they've handled it, how they manage it. And I'm like, man, some of this stuff snake oil. They're continuing to do the same thing, expecting a different result. And that's the definition of insanity, right? So life goes on. I didn't know yet what I was going to do. I wanted to get back into ag. Well, because of my experience and working on the road, and you know, I've worked with a lot of different uh, equipment dealerships, John Deere, Komatsu, Cat, worked on a lot of different equipment. I sold for Company Wrench. Uh, I was East Tennessee salesman. So I covered from Jellicoe to uh, Chattanooga, all the way to Johnson City. Uh, so the whole Eastern East Tennessee, and I had five counties in Southern Virginia. So my job is to go around and, and work with these equipment guys. And I was supposed to be selling new equipment. Uh, I sold Cabelco, which, you know, they're a good product and, and everybody has their place and, and their color and brand. But I found that I was building relationships and I was selling more parts and service because I would come into these clients and I'd, I'd more, more or less introduce myself, find out what they do, pull from what they're doing and maybe something I would see or I, I've heard them say more than two or three times something of a need for them. And then I would connect those dots for them. And so it's funny, one day, one of my clients uh, at that time uh, was Tennessee Valley Resources, which supplies a lot of the East Coast in dolomitic high magnesium lime. Well, I'd rented them a piece of equipment for their own farm and operation and built a really good relationship with these guys. And, the, and Jay uh, was, the, was the grandfather, and then Jake was the man that hired me, and they had a son, Jarrett, and a couple of the son, uh, two more sons. But they gave him the opportunity for a job so I could be home, only travel one week out of six instead of every week. Because for a full year, I lived in a camper or hotels except for the weekends. And uh, I took it. It lasted about a month. And I'm like, this is not for me. I don't want to sell rock dust. I don't feel like there's enough. Like That's just not enough to help a farmer be sustainable, right? Because if Lyme was the only answer, I didn't want to sell something. I wanted to help people think and teach them to think, not what to think, if that makes sense. And so I, I Googled independent crop consulting, found Joe Nestor. Northern Ohio, Nestor Ag. All right. At that time, it was Brookside Laboratories. And I called him. He didn't know me from Adam. I didn't know him. He said, yeah, I'll meet you at such and such date and a time. We got to talking and he said, yeah, I'll take you in. Because with Brookside, you know, it's a highly esteemed lab, very high credentialed. You know, somebody has to bring you in or you have to have great academics and, and things like that to get in. So here I am. I got started. I got Joe. But Joe's like three hours from me where I live. Okay. And so we would talk and I started an ag leader and and with my experience with Caterpillar and Trimble, and I did a lot mechanicing with GPS, setting up grade and, and, and recording and all that stuff. It, of course, started in the 90s and made its way through. So I had the mechanical side, the electronic side, the troubleshooting, and from that, it grew. I think one of the best things that I could have said when I started this company was, I don't know, but let me find out. Somebody on the other side of this black box does. Mm -hmm. You know, as technology has progressed, I started this 
in the worst of times for rain events, but the best of times. There's no perfect year. As I work with clients, I try to pull more samples in the spring versus the, the fall, unless they're just getting land or something like that, because I'm not chasing combines and working with frozen soils and that sort of thing. So did a lot of that in the beginning. So it taught me the school of hard knocks. I learned what worked and what didn't. I grew with my clients and from Brookside, I met people like Mitchell Hora, Continuum Ag, and so I met the Haney's and just those relationships grew and Mitchell and I have done a lot together and he's, he's way ahead of me by light years, but being able to bring these people together. Uh, Brookside now is called Amplify. And so they have peer groups and, and connecting farmers, connecting consultants, uh, pushing them, motivating them to make changes. The biggest problem we have is we never set a date to do something. By this date, uh, I'm going to put in shutters in the house. Or by this date, I'm going to get new tires. Or, you know, just dumb things like that. But if you don't challenge yourself, you're not going to change. It's too easy to sit here and stay the way you are. But if you want to grow or if you want to be more sustainable, you got to set goals and, and hold each other accountable. So let's talk about those three soil characteristics. Three legs. I call it three legs of the stool. Yeah. And so the first is the physical. Okay. A lot of times we think we need a test or spend big money to find an answer. Mm -hmm. False. Um, it kills me. We've got farmers with half a million dollar, million dollar pieces of equipment, GPS and all this, and they don't even have a shovel in their truck. Well, if you want to see what the, the nature of your soil looks like, take your shovel out there and dig it up. You know, D does it hold water? Does it infiltrate? You know, what type of soils do you have inherently? You know, is there soil aggregates? You see any fungi? Earthworms. I mean, in the spring, man, you better be full of earthworm. I mean, you can look at the coverage on that soil. There's just so many things you can look at and very relatively inexpensive other than your time and a shovel and a little bit of fuel to get there. So that to me is the physical side, the ability for that soil to infiltrate the store. In a drought time, if you're, you know, you're wondering, is that crop getting, still got moisture? Dig down. You're able to see where your hard pans are at. You're able to see where your moisture's at. I mean, there's just so many things. So we've been in a drought and it rained an inch. Well, how much of that did my soil get to capture and how much did I send down the road? So that's the physical side. So the second leg to that is that chemistry physics. That's that soil testing. That's that, you know, that full panel balancing. Uh, I, I'm a, I've kind of went all towards just using Haney, but there still is a place for Melic 1, Melic 3, maybe in your area, Bray 1, Bray 2, Olson. But you've got to look at your base saturation of balance, your calcium, magnesium. Because if you can't keep the soil lattices in balance and nutrients available or stored, that's half the battle. Uh, or a third of the battle, because the other third is if you can't get water to saturate those and solubilize those and, and get water biology, can't work, right? Well, you can't sit in a two-legged stool. You can, but it's going to get awfully awkward, right? The three-legged stool you can sit on, and that's the biological side, all right? We can really scale that now. You know, for over 100 years, we've used chemistry physics, soil testing. But we never gave credit to living, breathing ecosystems of biology. Mm -hmm. Well, now we can scale that with a Haney test. We can look at CO2 respiration. Uh, you know, we're able to use H3A acid, which is a humic acid, um, that has a, a greater average of acidity that our plant roots would put out, okay, for release of nutrients. Where a, a malic 1, malic 3 is very acidic. It's a nitrogen-based acid. And it doesn't mimic nature. We're looking about nutrient release for a plant that is never going to get that acidic, and you're not even mimicking nature. So again, let's go back to that biology. And every soil, every context is different, okay? Just like in school, every kid has a different learning curve. When we're able to scale this down to feed and exercise and to grow the biology in our soil and can have continual living roots, 
diversity, keep our CNN ratios in context for our area. And, and the soils that I work with, Tennessee and that, we're looking at a 12 to 1, 14 to 1 carbon-nitrogen ratio. But that's good with us. For the amount of, of heat units we get, the amount of rainfall we get, the amount of the soil temperatures for growing, if, if we feed, we can do well. You know, you get out more towards um, Iowa, out, you know, out that way, out Minnesota. You know, they're a little bit different. Iowa's definitely different than, than Minnesota, Wisconsin, because you guys freeze a lot more. But um, probably 8 to 1, 10 to 1, because of the amount. They have a lot more storage than we do, because our exchange capacities are different. So multiple things there in that three-legged soil health tool. But we can scale it. We can duplicate it. We can work with it. We can make money with it. So... Another big problem, so most farmers don't have a shovel, okay? Number one starter kit. Number two, you can record all you want. It's just data. It's just a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. But until you can make actionable changes with it, it's just ink on a paper or, or an email, okay? So, you know, one thing I like to use a lot for me, and I've got my producers using it, technology's grown. We have a lot more cell service and internet, and a lot more people are, are able to just carry around their phone or iPad, and not a, a book that's going to cure insomnia. Looking at nutrients, right? So I use Topsoil tool. Um, I love it. Uh, it allows me to interact with my clients. It's all web-based. They don't have to wait for me. As soon as it comes, it's there real time. Mm -hmm. So we can scale that. We can run over years, over crops. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can scout with it, pinpoint. We can really put everything we've done into it. Mm -hmm. Okay, like everything, uh, the... Technology is still continuing to grow, evolve. I don't like that word, but it's, it's growing. It's, it's still keeping up demands of the market and, and changes and new things we're learning. Mm -hmm. You know, like soil health, it's not been around as, as long as chemistry, physics, testing. So we can scale all that, and a farmer can take that, and that's actionable data that he can use to make him more profitable. Now, what about um, tissue testing, sap analysis, that sort of thing? Because there's stuff in the soil, but yeah. if it's not actually available, then your, your plants aren't taking it up. So let's talk about that. So again, uh, the biggest thing that everybody's always chased, uh, if it wasn't P and K in season, was nitrogen, right? We're always thinking nitrogen's a problem. Well, in the beginning years, I tissue tested and there's an algorithm, there's a DRIS, as they call it, of acceptable nutrient availability that will still pr produce a crop in that stage of growth where yes, add, no, it doesn't make sense, profitability. As a consultant, you know, you, you, can, you can build these algorithms. I'm away from it. Uh, I'm not saying nitrogen is still not important, but at the end of the day, I'm getting tired of seeing so many people thinking that they're doing it all when biology is still doing a lot of it. So I've got away from it, uh, from tissue, and I'm doing more sap. Okay. So the cool thing about sap is um, sending in leaves at different stages as well as soil with it. Mm -hmm. We know what's in the soil, right? right? What should become available if we get the rain, the biology's function, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. With the sap, you're looking at xylem and phloem. You're looking at up uptake mm -hmm. of that plant. You're looking at new leaves, which is the immediate release of that nutrient because all the nutrients are going to come to the roots, to the new leaves, and then go to the old. Mm -hmm. So being able to do that, we're better able to scale through weather, weather patterns, fertility that we know that's out there, soil balances, soil health. We're able to say, okay, this is a weather pattern event, or we're have, still having issues because we're able to look at mobile nutrients in that plant mm -hmm. at different stages, as well as knowing what's in the soil mm -hmm. and better determine, do we need a foliar spray? Do we not? Can we go over the top? To me, that's a better tool in my belt. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's not a place for tissue. Mm -hmm. People still do it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, 
but we're able to use new technology. Nobody walks around with, with an old dial rotary phone in your pocket, right. right? So nobody dropped that in their pocket and lost it. Now we have smartphones yeah. and they keep getting even more smart. But we need to be able to take in this new change and start to accept it. Not because it doesn't make sense because there's actionable data with it. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's just a cool new fad. I use it. Um, it doesn't matter what crop you're using. There, then there, there, there is a nutrient uptake availability for that crop and it's going to continue. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be able to take that data. The same with what the Haney started. You know, it took years and data and different mm -hmm. testing. You've got to compile that. But again, we were able to take it and actionably use it. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm really pushing for the SAP, you know, in the scouting program. Um, for me and my producers, you know, I don't have giant, giant fields. Uh, I've got some big fields, uh, but at the end of the day, a lot of mine are still 40 acre and under. And we may have a 600 acre or 400 acre here and there. Um, so, you know, there's always different advantages of flying drones, things like that, that we can do. But right now, I'm not. I'm going to do other things. There's so many different data points that we can we can use. So. so what is your general recommendation for SAP analysis? I mean, talk me through how a farmer goes through doing that. Or... So I use uh, New Age Labs uh, out of Michigan. And so I try to do it at least two or three times. Really, I, I need three different growth stages to see if I've had a, a mobility of a nutrient overall. Was it a genetic in that seed? Was it a, a weather condition? It really lets me know, is this continue to be a problem or not? Because I've had my soil with my SAP. You know, you're, you're going to take 10 to 20 of your best of your new leaves, 10 to 20 of your old leaves, depending on how intense you get it. And you're going to ship them at the same time. You're not going to freeze them. You're going to keep them cool. You're going to ship them next day because they don't want them froze. They want the nutrients still mobile in the leaves. Mm -hmm. They'll test them and they'll get your report awesome. a week, 10 days, sometimes sooner than that, depending on what you pay for. And mm -hmm. uh, they can usually get some turnarounds. Yeah. Uh, when I do SAP, I want to ship it on a Monday morning. That way I can get there by Tuesday and they're, more or less going to have it done by, before Friday, depending on what the load and time of year is. Uh, we can get them back pretty quick. And then, again, uh, they always say if, if you see a problem in the field after a heavy event, give it seven to ten days. Walk away, come back in a week, let's look at it again. Nobody ever does that. But usually if there's a nutrient problem in a plant and it was a weather condition, it's going to come out of it. You're going to see it within less than a week, depending on, you know, climate. But, again, you know, spraying, getting in the field. Let's say, for instance, for nitrogen over corn. I'd like to be able to go out if I was going to pull nitrates. A lot of times I'm using Haney for my nitrate now. Uh, instead of doing regular nitrogen testing, looking at nitrate and oxide nitrogen. But I'll go two weeks prior to when I could do my last application of nitrogen. Whether that's Y drops or whether that's knifing it in 28, 32, 30%, that sort of thing. But that's the way, you know, we try to do three, two to three weeks before our last application. Just to make sure we don't run out of gas in the nitrogen department if nitrogen's our limiting factor. So weather has been a big issue for farmers all over the country this year, but it sounds like you guys around here, is, it's been pretty good. So what I call home, we've had excess rain for the last couple of years, whether that's a planting, whether that's a harvest. So what that means is, is it's harder to get it in the ground, harder to get it up without drought, or not drought, without water damage, replants, and then again, getting it out of the field. So, I mean, we, we haven't been, I can remember years we'd have hard freezes and be shelling corn 20 degrees, 25, 28 degrees, because we had to get out of the field. But with corn, as long as the ears drop, it, it would stand, right? Wasn't as crucial as beans with, with pods popping and, and losing uh, yield. So that's been huge. But for the guys that have, you know, started with, of course, no-till, uh, 
minimal till and, and, and bad spots after bad years uh, as far as ruts and things like that. You know, waterways, implementing covers, they've had less issues. Now, I will tell you, uh, Ohio is getting there. They're doing a great job. This is my home state I grew up in. Uh, the climate has, has been the difficult, difficulty here. Um, but there's also been some great success here in Ohio with, with Kevin Crop guys. So just working with the farmers, and they've got to believe in it. Because I'll tell you, when you switch to covers, it's like it's like marriage. The first year is, is, is the honeymoon stage, and everything's great. It's a new thing, and cool, I'm doing it. And then the second year, things don't quite go as expected. The third year, things are tough. We gotta, I need a support group. Help me out here. And by year five, I found with covers, it really starts to show. Farmers get their aha moment. And if they'll stick with it for five years and stay in a positive. If I want something to fail, keep giving me negatives because I'm going to get in my head that it's going to be a negative thing. But if you'll stay the journey, you'll support, you surround yourself with like-minded people. I don't care where they're at. They'll, they'll help you. Uh, one thing about the Soil Health family, there are shirt tail riders, there are naysayers, and then there are true, genuine people. And I've been blessed and thankful to be in a group of them. Uh, this week, uh, Lauren Steinlock, a great friend of mine, West Union, Iowa, he's got a field day. But Lauren's been a great one. Uh, Russell Hedrick, you know, all these people that were early in this, they've helped mentor me. They've made me think. And the thing is, is, yeah, one guy says it. Yeah, maybe two guys. Well, now I've got to see, okay, what are they doing? Why is it working? You know, the how, what, when, why, where? English class, right? Uh, so those are the things that I scale and I look at. Because if there's anything that a new guy's going to ask you that's smart is, okay, you've told me all the good, you know, improved soil function, improved soil uh, saturation and, and nutrient storage and soil temperatures, but tell me the bads. Mm -hmm. And somebody can sit there and bullcrap to you for hours. Mm -hmm. But when you can strategically say, hey, you know, this year I did this and it, and it tied up all my moisture. You know, a lot of guys will, will plant cereal rise and, and all these grasses because they need to get their carbon number up. They've already got the nitrogen, right, for all these years of beans and, and lots of nitrogen applications with corn. But grasses love water, right? If you've got a green grass, you've probably got a good crop. It's going to be green as well. But it, initially, if you don't have that organic matter, you don't have that biology functioning of continual release of nutrients, water holding capacity, them grasses are going to hurt you. Even though soybeans can grow inside of, of, of those other grasses, if they're a legume, and you can terminate at a later date, they will, they will take away all the, all the water that those soybeans still need. So what we've experienced here in Ohio is a lot of rain, okay, which the grasses would have probably helped. But then we, we might hit a drought spot. And if we're still sucking up water, everybody wants to say it's a nutrient problem. But I bet you if they take their shovel out, they're going to find out it wasn't necessarily the nutrients was the problem. It was the ability to function and, and cycle water. You know, those are some of the things that when guys are cover cropping and starting out, they don't know. And then they hit that and they just want to quit. Or they sign up in a program with NRCS and USDA. And I'm thankful those programs are there because some guys wouldn't even get started in it without that. And then as they start to learn the journey, they're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to take some farms, but you know what? I own this. I'm going to do this for me. I don't necessarily need that program. I'm going to do it on my own. You know, it's just kind of that starting off with, with training wheels and learn how to ride a bicycle. Eventually you take the wheels off. And so a lot of guys will continue on and do it their way and make crazy mixes and play with things. So that's one thing Tennessee has given me the opportunity to learn a lot about is, you know, they, they say 40 in Tennessee is, is the dividing line for temperatures. The Holy Grail, you know, we get south, um, Adam Daughtry, Coffee County. He has got an amazing area. Now, it, it's not from a lack of the community working hard, uh, working together, 
uh, Adam's uh, striving this to work with these guys to get them doing cover crops, give them diversity, working with Haney's, working with these different labs, doing PLFA and these things. But they're, they're warm a long time. And so they're able to, to grow more. So the more that plants can grow, the ability to cycle nutrients, capture sunlight, release more reoccurring nutrients. They're just able to build their soils faster. Where up here, you know, we're going to be frozen. Used to be from about October until March. Okay, that's kind of changed. Up Wisconsin, I'm sure you guys are, are frozen a lot more than that. So your ability for, for covers and that are still there. It's just a longer process due to your, your freezing and thawing. So working with the context of where you're at and, and being a support group for those that are trying to get into it. Yeah. So I've heard that, you know, in the South where it's warmer, those warmer temperatures really cycle everything faster. And so that can actually be a detriment in yeah, terms yeah. of building soil. So talk about that. Yeah, so you can actually have it too, too rapidly where you can't store it. Uh, you get your predator prey out because you get a lot more humidity, moisture, things of that nature. So you've got to keep that in balance. So you go from one extreme all the way to the other, having too much, not being able to cycle it. So what do people do in that case to, to um, not so, burn it up so fast? So you can back off your CNN based on your cover crop programs, whether that's a grass, a legume, what you plant, maybe carbon nitrogen neutral. The big thing is getting pollinators out there. I think that's the next step that we're really getting in Tennessee is, is buffer strips, pollinator identifiers, getting more of that living, breathing ecosystem, the biology all working together along with birds and insects and bats and getting that, that diversity. So you need that balance, um, but being able to scale that because yeah, we can pump a lot of carbon with cereal rye and things like that really quickly, but we can also go the other way and tie up. So we've got to keep that balance, you know, keep, I, I want to say every year testing, um, depending on where, how detriment that field is, maybe next three years until I know that soil is functioning properly and maybe go to one every other year or, Hey, I'm, I'm wanting to change something up. So let's go through and rescale it again. Um, again, looking at nitrogen, everybody just wants to look at the ammoniated uh, and nitrate testing, but they don't just, they don't look at that. Well, how much organic do I have? And then based on that organic number, I can look at, so it used to be Solvita, okay, in soil health, we, we, we use Solvita. And now we use IR gas to measure that CO2 to look at that community of biology and respiration, CO2 respiration. So we're able to look at based upon how much they're decaying, how much they're breaking down, how much they're waste, which is weon, water extractable nitrogen. We're able to see what they're going to produce for us. So uh, I don't think it's free lunches. It is free lunches, but you have to invest in a soil and invest in that living and breathing ecosystem before it can give back to you. So there's a balance there as well, but they're working for you when you're sleeping. And there's nobody out there that doesn't like to make money when they're sleeping. Let's burn a timeout and share a quick message from our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment. The 2984 Strip Freshener from Yetter gives you flexibility within your strip till system. You control the level of tillage performed to create the ideal seedbed. Strip fresheners can also place liquid or dry fertilizer in the strips. Use it ahead of the planter to facilitate consistent soil warming and bring existing strips to life. Use the strip freshener in the fall, in the spring, or in both seasons. You decide. Visit yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com for more information. Now back to the podcast. 
So that's the underground uh, biology. What about above ground? I mean, what do you think about the animal integration? Is some people say it's critical, but others are like, eh, not Can it be done without it? Yes, it can. I have great friends. Uh, Lauren Steinlogge is one of them. Mitchell Hoare and them. They don't have livestock. Okay, everything is a context. Now, can they speed it up? Are there are there things, you know, where there's more animal um, integration, you know, using fulvic acids and these different things are not as much needed, uh, but they're still very important, okay? Uh, but you're, you're getting more of that diversity, you know, the saliva, the, the, the urine, the poop, really feeding that immediate nutrients for the biology. Um, but you can do just as great a success without it. And, you know, that's still an argument. It's, I'm sure you could start a East versus West fist fight. But again, it comes down to what's your baseline? What, what do you believe in? Because again, every day you get up and you stand for something, whether you know it or not, what, your, your operation, your home, your farm, what you handle yourself tells a lot about you. And so I encourage people to try something new, maybe not too many things at once, uh, because you don't, can't really scale that unless you can really monitor each process. But, you know, take a year and try something new. So so there's been, I think, pretty good no, uh, no-till and cover crop um, adoption in Tennessee over the years, right? So um, I'm just wondering, why has that location been so successful? Um, you know, the temperatures were huge, the support group. Um, they just had the climate for it, and they took off. Uh, there's a lot of smaller, I mean, there's still big farmers in West Tennessee, cotton and that. And they've deteriorated their soils a lot with cotton and green beans. You know, they're, they're great, bountiful crops, but they suck a lot of carbon out of the soil. So, you know, having to fix that, repair, reheal their soils. You know, we know if, if you stay with a monoculture crop for too long, that predator-prey biology, you're going to have a lot of issues you didn't have before. You know, that's why a lot of this, this crop integration of, of rotation came in. Uh, you know, if here in Ohio, you know, tobacco, you know, you know, there's so many things with black shank and, and different biology that we had to get out of there. So introducing this new crop, we're able to bring in new biology players to the game. And so I think a lot of it was a little bit of degrading of soils, but also knowing that they needed to fix their soils. You know, East Tennessee is, is, is mostly cattle. A lot of hill. Now there's tomatoes. You know, Granger County is huge for tomatoes. Um, Mossy Creek Farms is probably the largest no-till cover crop farmer in all of East Tennessee. Uh, they do a great job out there. I uh, had the opportunity to work with them and just great people. Uh, but most of that is cattle, okay? So they're they're kind of a step ahead because, now, I hate to say it, but most cattle farmers don't invest in seeds in their soil. They want to buy new gates and new waters and more feed. But those that do grass-fed and, and, and grass-finished, they know that they have to keep their bricks up, keep their total uh, digestive nutrients up. So they need diversity, uh, cool season, warm season for grazing. Um, and they also know that, that that cost for every pass of fertility and things is expensive. So if we can fix soil with living roots, let's do it. And again, working with NRCS, USDA, bringing those incentives in. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, the, the techs and, and the districts and the area guys that go out and really promote this, I mean, they're like soil soldiers. Even though, you know, the government's backing them, they're out there, they have to build a relationship with that client. And yeah, they're going to have a contract, but they have to work with these people. And these people are very standoffish. You know, I've got some that, if they're either going to do it their way or not doing it at all, and I have others that need help, and they've seen success from other people out west, different places, so they're adapting this. So I'm very thankful to be able to be in Tennessee. Mike Hubs, my predecessor ahead of me, great man. Uh, he actually worked in Iowa as well with soil health, and 
Uh, I learned a lot from him. And, you know, he's, he's retired and, and st- went in from soil health to now human health and does his own personal training business. So he's going full circle. It's, it's pretty cool. But uh, he and I get to talk. I talked to him the other day. We're going to sit down and have coffee soon. And just talk about, you know, where he was at. I've heard stories and how he would work with producers. And sometimes you'll find when you work with people, I call it the bell cow effect, is I can talk to these persons who I'm blue in the face, but they may listen to somebody else. So, you know, in, in a herd of cattle, if, if you can get that bell cow to come, the rest of them will follow. Well, sometimes working with these producers, if you'll find the main guy in that area and they understand it and they believe in it, the rest will follow so Mike's taught me a lot about that stuff. And, and the dude is a book genius. I don't have the, the soil science that he has. You know, it, it's crazy. I never went to school for agronomy. Um, just had a passion in farming uh, and troubleshooting and just cutting the, cutting the crap and, and getting where we can get more to understanding what we can control, what we can't, and be better managers, better stewards. You mentioned tobacco, and I was just kind of curious. What's the process for transitioning from tobacco to another crop and how degraded are the soils after? So tobacco, you know, it is a great crop. Uh, As far as opening up soil lattices and things, tobacco has got a big root system. Okay. Uh, And really, I love tobacco. I love the smell of it. Um, It's different in the East Coast. You know, I work with a lot of flu cured tobacco, which is totally different from Burley that I grew up with. You know, we would hang tobacco in barns and, and dry it or in the field and standing racks and then strip it by hand. Uh, in the East Coast, they'll grow it, and they actually have processing machines that can cut the leaves, or they'll they'll use uh, migratory workers or, or locals, and they'll pick it by hand, and then you know then they put it in these they call them buck barns, but barns with where they dry them down and, and that sort of thing. But um, a lot of times they'll follow a tobacco crop with a corn crop because there's a lot of nitrogen and a lot of potassium in a in a tobacco crop, so they want to utilize that in their corn crop. And then they'll follow it with soybeans. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they'll go uh, corn, wheat, so, uh, double crop soybean, and then back to their tobacco. And that way, if there's any liming that needs done, they have time because their number one moneymaker is that tobacco. They have lighter soils, less exchange soils. Now, there's still one or two of those farmers that, that went out a different way, first-generation farmers that have really changed the paradigm of that. But... The guys that have been in tobacco for years, they're going to tell you, that's my cash crop. That's where I make my money. Uh, so from there, the second thing that they're going to make their most money on is corn. And so working in, in six different areas in North Carolina, all the way from, from the Blacklands, the East Coast, over the mountain range, expectation of yields a little bit different. But that's usually how they rotate to, to keep and to get rid of this, this pressure from black shank. Because it is, it is big. And is that a fungal disease? A lot of times it is, yes. Okay. You know, black shank will, will flat just eat the root system, kill it, and then... The plant dies and you're in bad, you're in bad shape. Uh, so uh, now I will tell you out there that they're doing some no-tilling, but it only lasts about two years, maybe three. Because when it goes back to tobacco, they have to till the soil. Their soils are so sandy, they make, they make mounds. Okay, they make beds, raised beds, and then they'll plant their, they'll set their tobacco and then they'll come back through with a re-bed shaper and throw more soil back on top of that soil. Um, some, one of my clients in, in uh, Vernon Hill, they, they put out, I don't know, 200 acres this year and maybe had an inch of rain since April. 200 acres of tobacco, that's a lot of money. And so we went out there and, and it hadn't hurt it. It never got really tall, but with tobacco, it's not always height. You need leaves. Leaves is what pays the money, right? And so we dug down with a shovel. Now, we didn't have a lot of 
a lot of moisture, but we still had moisture in them beds, surprisingly. And then they finally got some of these last few rains from this hurricane and their tobacco crop was just bumpered, you know. By all means, a lot of people that don't understand tobacco call tobacco weed, okay? You know, a lot of people give it a bad rap because of what it is. And really, it's, it's a beautiful crop. It's a great crop. Uh, it, it's grown a lot of families. It's raised a lot of families. And it's helped a lot of this industry. So, you know, even though it's still small, it has its place and its purpose. Um, I want to make a little transition here and ask you about your thoughts on the carbon markets. All right. So... Wild West. It's like when hemp came to the Carolinas in Tennessee. Uh, we're still building that. Um, I think we're getting closer. I would really have people hesitant on signing a contract with somebody right now. And the reason being is don't put all your eggs in one basket. You don't do it with farming. You don't sell all your grain on the same day. Don't do the same thing with carbon. So let's watch this continue to unfold. There is getting there, uh, but it's still... Walk slowly and cautiously when you don't know. Uh, I, I do think we got some parameters definitely set, ways we can scale it and use it, that data to have actionable cost and what it's worth. But my fear is, is a lot of guys, you know, there's always early adopters and then there's those that felt that followed the bell cows uh, that end up dying when they cross the river. But the, we're, we're still unfolding, guys. Uh, it's not all there. You know, the cool thing with using Topsoil too is I can scale what I've done. You know, I think it's good and bad, but early adopters of cover crop people, you know, we, we, you don't get carbon without living, 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 growing roots, organics, right? So with grasses, but the guys that were early adopters, a lot of them aren't getting the, the incentive now that the government's given for these new guys. Now, some of them are getting it for their crop insurance, but I think it's crap that we're not giving value back to these farmers that said, you know what, I'm going to do this because this is the right thing and I believe in it. And again, they're getting slapped, kicked in the teeth. And I think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think we should still help them and, and give them what they deserve. If we can give it to Joe Blow that's continued to do it wrong and send phosphorus down the stream and we got algae blue and all these other issues, we ought to get giving credit back to these guys that started earlier and early adopters. You also mentioned hemp, and I'd just love to hear you talk about what the hemp market is doing these days, because there was a big boom real quick in 2018, 2019. Yeah, you know, I had 30, 32, 36 clients at one time, two states, and uh, it was beautiful. Uh, the, the, for the tobacco guys, it's still going. Uh, I'm, I'm still going to tell you, it's still growing. It's not as strong. There was a lot of those that fizzled out and died. You know, when I first started, you know, wanted to be, kind of be new in the industry, uh, again, Wild West Cowboy style, there wasn't algorithms as far as... Now, there were because hemp and, and marijuana, I mean, they're both in that cannabis family as far as nitrogen, expected nitrogen removal rate, uh, phosphorus, potassium, things of that nature. Now, there is some different with the minor nutrients, different things we have to look at, but you still had to have balanced soils. It's a great rotation. It has a great root system. Everything I've read and seen and even seen with people that have used it, the oils and things... The problem was, is I don't think the industry was set up on how to use it and how to look for quality, right? Before you go buy food, cereal, whatever, you're looking at what, what, what's in it. You know, what are the nutrients? What's the quality? How should I expect to use this? Uh, what, what fits for my weight or, you know, all these things. And I don't think there was a great education program with it. And yes, it's in every gas station, smoke shop, from here to wherever you want to go. But it's really fell off. Um, it's still there. It, there's still there's still purpose. Um, it's still good for for human health and animals and everything else. I mean, it's it's a great well-rounded crop, good rotational crop. Um, right now, 
I think fiber, if I had to guess, the fiber industry right now is booming. Um, I've got a cl two clients. We're going to do some in Tennessee next year. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say there's not been fiber in Tennessee before. I just don't know about them. Mm -hmm. But they can use that for so many different industries, from clothes to door panels and cars. You know, we've sent so many jobs across the pond that need to be back in this United States. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you when you came to me today, you've driven through towns and you're like, you know, is this deliverance? Or should I listen for banjos? Like, what's going on? And it's because, well, there's no industry, the community dies. They have no purpose. They'd rather just sit and draw a check. Well, I make more money sitting at home. Well, for, for one, that comes down to the integrity of the person and the, and the purpose-driven life they have. But there's nothing for them to go do if they wanted to go do it. Because there's no incentive to grow. And, and a lot of these guys still have all this equipment out there for tobacco that's sitting around that we can still reutilize. So we're not wasting, we're, we're reusing, recycling that, mm -hmm. and we're putting the industry back to work. So I'm all for it. Yeah. I'm all about working. I probably sound like a workaholic, but you know, at the end of the day, I'd rather go to bed tired and know I made a difference or at least did something mm -hmm. than sit at home all day and have tons of energy and can't sleep because I didn't do anything. Well, and uh, I gather the, the uh, part of the problem with um, industrial hemp for grain and fiber has been a lack of processing facilities. So are, are we making headway in that regard? Yeah, we, we are. You know, you know Canada still, really trying to get in that market strong. Uh, the United States is starting to get there. Um, I'm still learning more of the processing plants on that. It's not hard to grow and process. If you've ever bailed hay in your life and you've driven a combine, you're, you're heads up, man. You're already a leg up in this industry. So it, it's really easy to manage. Again, the biggest problem, you know, with hemp, it's very labor intensive. It's like tobacco, a lot of people, fiber, not so much. <laughs> you drill it, you grow it, you're able to harvest it, you bale it. You know, you're, you're going to have your, your, your pre-purchasers. You know, a lot of the guys that I work with, and I learned this through struggles on my own on getting paid, it wasn't because they didn't have good crops because they couldn't sell it, is a lot of the people jump in these markets and grow it hoping that somebody will buy it. But I think if I'm going to tie up that much money and risk, I think I'm going to lock in 60 to 80% of it to at least cover my costs, right? right. At least break even. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what made most of these people drown is they didn't have the foreknowledge or the foresight to say, does this pencil out? Worst case, what am I going to break even? Because, you know, everything keeps getting more expensive, so nothing's getting cheaper and profitability is getting smaller. Right. There's also the problem with the THC testing, though, right? Because they're, they couldn't do it timely, yeah, and so, so they were getting hot crops. Up. Yeah, that's ramped up. And, and with fiber, now, I, I will tell you, when you put genetically and, and based on the nutrients and how you treat these plants, there's good seed out there. In the beginning, uh, I'll say with hemp seed, you know, you had to have your paperwork for it to be certified. But I'm going to tell you, there was a bunch of, I think, low-strand THC marijuana that was sold for hemp uh, seed because there was a lot of stuff that went hot and everything was in balance. And you're like, something ain't driving here. Uh -huh. So th there's a lot more, um, the ability for testing those things for THC and, and the process turnaround time, totally different. And when to scout it and how to do it and the farmers being able to do it, not waiting on an agronomist to come do it. Or they've been able to get their own agronomist. Just so much has been able to change. Okay, good. Sounds good. Um, all right. So I also just wanted to ask, as I'm sure you know, because you're working with the USDA and everything, Biden administration wants to have 30% of U.S. lands and waters in uh, conservation by 2030. And I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, uh, we're at something like 12% right now. All of this is supposed to be voluntary. I'm just kind of curious what your perspective is on that. Is that something that the soil and water districts are going to be pushing for? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, those with the soil and water district and USDA NRCS that believe in this, that are go-getters, 
they're already trying. But I'm going to tell you that a lot of people early on jumped on the bandwagon. They didn't have support groups, and they got out. And a lot of those acres that were in it before have come and have, have went back the other way because they didn't have good education or, or good support to continue on the journey. Am I hopeful? Yes. But I can tell you this. It has to be either pain or a financial gain for people to change. And I think those that are doing it, that have more nutrient-dense crops, should be paid for their efforts. And again, most of these farmers are going to make a change for money because the cost of the equipment, the cost of, of hauling that grain, is doing nothing but going up. The quality of our food, everything's full circle. You know, if we just look at the sicknesses and the different things, you know, one thing that I'm very discouraged in is in this whole COVID, and I'm not going to get in this because that's not what I'm about. Everybody was talking about the scare and wear this and wear that mask or, you know, did this shot, but nobody talked about maybe eat healthy, exercise, right. take care of yourself. Yeah. They're waiting for the antidote after the screw up instead of trying to prevent it before they got there. So I think with those two things in mind, you know, standing behind what you grow, better quality, um, there, there are a lot of people that have seen the light. And, and even though we were segregated, a lot of us are just now getting around to see a lot of loved ones and friends and these events, the, the want to change is there. They just need to know, they need help to understand how to use what they have to get there. Mm -hmm. So if, if this Biden administration wants to push that, they need to give credit to those that were doing it and that have already been doing it and then build the education groups for the others because there's going to be tough times. Mm -hmm. You know, I said earlier, it's like marriage. There's good years and there's bad years. You just got to learn how to what works for you and, and overcome it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many um, challenges, but there's so many good people already doing it mm -hmm. that if people get over their pride, that's the biggest thing, they can do this and we can. Mm -hmm. Now, again, uh, I'm not getting into politics, so I'm going to let that die, but is it achievable? Yes. But the hearts of the people are going to want to have to have it, and with that, the financial gain. And I think that's rewarding those that have already done it and continuing to do it and continuing to aid those that are doing it. And so uh, I struggle with an insurance date when it comes to, to planting because planting cover, in cover crops and planting without cover crops is two different types of farming. Uh, you know, with tillage and things, or minimal tillage, you know, they want to get on that field fast. It may warm, the soils may warm up faster, but I guarantee you those soils are going to dry out faster or going to flood faster than the ones that have covers because they can cycle water and nutrients and the others can't. So I struggle with that too. And I think these guys that are in covers, they should let off a little bit on the dates uh, because I've seen crops planted at the end of June, beginning of June in covers that have flat, I don't know, double, triple lapped conventional tillage plants. But yet we're, we're writing that big insurance farming and, this is going to sound horrible, but Trump did something right. When he cut back the insurance on farmers, it made that farmer think more about him putting that seed in the ground. He wasn't just going to go two, three times replants. He was probably going to make sure that when he put that seed in the ground, it was at the best, babe, the best way he know how. Now, I understand logistics, uh, and you and I talked about this earlier. I think sometimes farmers, they're more worried about the acres they farm and getting the quantity than they worry about the quality. And if we get back to quality farming, and, and get out of this corn, wheat, beans, house rotation, I think we can, we can get this back. And it kills me. We want to put in more infrastructure, bigger culverts, bigger roads. But that just means the water runs off the field and gets down there and, and floods Mississippi, Louisiana faster. Why don't we give better surface area 
for that, that water to function and be able to take in and absorb and use what it needs and then release it properly. We wouldn't need the bridges and, and the overpasses we have. Now, maybe for people in transportation, because babies keep being born, but the biggest problem we have is we're more worried about getting that water away than we are trying to figure out how can I get that water here to stay. So again, that goes with some of this other incentive. And it's full, I mean, it's full circle. You know, um, give, give back to those that have been doing it. And I guarantee you it won't take long for those to get on the bandwagon. Because an administration's four years sometimes. Uh, and in four years, I've seen with these, these sign-up programs with USDA, it'll last about maybe five, maybe, unless they see the benefit. But if they're surrounded with a bunch of naysayers, as soon as that money runs out, They'll be out there with a turbo tilling and a disc the next spring, tearing it up. Um, now, I will tell you, there's a lot of cover crop farmers and even NRCS guys that hated it when, cover, when hemp come to Tennessee and even to, in the Carolinas because they took fields that have been in covers for five, ten years. And what's the first thing they did? They took a piece of steel and they drug the ground because of weed, you know, weed suppression. They had to turn that ground so they literally took their bank account they had built and they turned it upside down. And so you get some you get some bad taste in their mouth with hemp, not only because they can't sell it, but also because of how people manage their land. So but there's a lot of hemp being built, being grown in covers now and and people, you know, having great success. So again, it's it's all that adoption and change. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, to wrap this up, I just want to kind of bring this back to your business as uh, sustainable legacy consulting. Correct? Yes, ma'am. So if you want to just wrap it up with what your mission is and sort of your long-term vision for for success for your company. You know, um, I guess the first thing I have to tell you is, is people ask me, you know, what is it you do? Because I don't sell anything. I sell myself and, and the network of people I know. And uh, I, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a threefold again. I like the threes. Somewhere between an agronomist, the financial advisor, and then Dr. Phil. You know, when things go wrong, right? You need somebody to help. Uh, so that's kind of what I do, um, and I work all over. Uh, my phone's always on. Emails are always there. So my biggest thing is, is is building the relationships and helping producers. And sometimes I'm not the answer, but I connect them with who that answer might be. And that's crazy coming out of my mouth. Well, isn't that money? Uh, I call it paying forward because as long as you're building relationships and you're building integrity with these farmers, uh, it's, it's going to continue the legacy. You know, my company name is a mouthful, and that's why I say SLC. But, you know, I have kids, I have children, and I have children that are my children. As far as, you know, I, I have friend, uh, farmer friends, their kids, and, you know, they're all watching what we're doing, good and bad. You know, we've all had things in life we had to overcome, but um, we, we can't expect the future to do better than us if we don't t teach them where we fail, where we struggle, how we overcome, and why we do what we do. And so I guess my mission is, is just to bring the, the integrity, the good land stewardship, and the networking to these producers. And there are far, far smarter people out there than me, especially in the agronomist uh, department. But I'm not afraid to say that. But the cool thing is, is I became friends with those guys. And th they say the more minds, the stronger that that group is. And so I hope someday that Sustainable Legacy is worldwide. And if nothing else, yeah, they know the name, they've seen the goofy face, I love people. Um, it really, you know, killed me when we had to go to Zoom meetings and Facebook Live because I want to see the faces because I can't see where they're at. I can't see the struggle in their eyes. I can't see the success to be able to celebrate and enjoy with them. 
But also, like I said, I, I can't see when they're struggling to say, hey, how can I help you? I'm here. You know, it used to be, you know, walk a mile in that guy's shoes. Go two, three, four miles with that guy. You may not financially get it back, but it might be somewhere else. And I'll tell you, usually a, a business is going to crumble in its first year, third year, and fifth year. Now, by the grace of God, I'm still here. Uh, you know, I've been in this uh, five years, but if it wasn't for the other agronomist I work with and my farmers, there's days that I wanted to quit. But because I was there for them, they've been there for me. Because there's nobody out there that doesn't have bad days and good days. And if, if you'll be open for them, keep your door open for them, you'll keep going forward. And so I really think as much as I am a crop consulting and soil consulting, relationship builder is probably my thing. Uh, I'm not your great office personnel. I'm, I'm not your, your T cross and I daughter unless I have to be. And I can be, but um, I really like building the relationships with the people and, and seeing what other people are doing. You know, if I only would have stayed in Ohio, I would not know what's going on in Iowa, in Texas, in North Carolina. And you don't know what other people are struggling with and why they're struggling with it until you went through it with them. And so, um, again, looking forward to making Tennessee our home, long-term new business foundation. Uh, I hope to expand this company and have other branches. Um, and working with Topsoil and, and Continuum Ag, a uh, very great friend, you know, Mitchell Hora and their people. He's like a little brother to me. Uh, I got to tell you, even Brian, his, his father, and and all of them, they're just, they're fantastic. And, you know, in the beginning, they were so well-connected and still are. And I feel like uh, I'm lucky just to be part of them. Uh, but through those relationships, I've been able to help my clients in the East Coast. And, and again, it's that back and forth relationship. And I think if just keeping that going, that's what SLC's future is, is just building relationships and helping people do the right thing and help them understand what they don't know. Reminds me of a quote, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, and I'm not going to say this company, you know, I, I, uh, I've been really blessed. You know, I had $14,000, which seems like a lot of money to start a company. Anybody out there that's listening to this podcast knows $14,000. You're like, you're a crazy dude. I had $14,000, a pickup truck, a probe and an iPad and a laptop. And there are days I didn't know how I was going to make it. I'm not going to tell you that in the beginning, all I did was crop consulting. Um, I would help do other things. I wore multiple hats, meaning you might mow grasses, you might do whatever. But I knew my passion was this. And if you never give up on your dreams, sometimes you have to fund that with other things. You'll get there because people will see through that. But you can get there. It is achievable. Uh, you know, my story of breaking my neck, uh, by the grace of God, getting it all back, doesn't happen for everybody. That there is life after being injured. You know, our war veterans, you know, we couldn't be here and do what we do. Every time I have the opportunity, I give it back to our veterans. We wouldn't have the freedom to make a choice had it not been for them. And watching people that have been wounded, uh, recovered from, from drugs, from alcoholism, if, if it wasn't for seeing their lives and being touched by them, same thing I, hopefully I can do with my company, there's hope. And when there's hope, you can still find willful people and, again, multiple minds to be able to go a long way. And so as long as we keep that the foundation, our baseline, uh, we'll be able to make it. All right, that'll wrap things up for this edition of the Strip Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment. Thanks to Julia Gerlach and Jeremiah Durbin for that great conversation. Thanks to you for tuning in as always. My name's Noah Newman. And remember, until next time, for all things Strip Till, head to striptillfarmer.com. Have a great day.